If you turn back over to the other side of the sheet there, you'll see that our scripture is taken from the Gospel of Luke, and we're in chapter 11 and taking up our, our reading and working through the Gospel in verse 33. Jesus is speaking to a crowd, and, and he continues his speech by adding this parable to what's been said already. You know, remember last week, or actually two weeks ago, maybe you won't remember, that's long enough that it's been too long to remember, but Jesus has just spoken to the crowd and declared that here is one before them that is greater than Solomon and greater than Jonah, and to look at him. And then after saying that, he turns to them and adds this parable, verse 33, God's word to us. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. Therefore, if then your whole body is full of light, Having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Amen. I, uh, I assume that as you were making your way back to, back to your tables and, and uh, settling to, to listen to the word read and to sing praises to God, that you heard me pray, and I hope that as you heard me pray, you prayed along with me in your hearts to God. And I, I wonder if you notice that as I prayed, as I do, and all of us do before we turn to the Scriptures, I prayed a prayer of what we call illumination. Illumination. It is, it is a prayer by which we seek to be illuminated. That is, lit up intuitively. I think that we all know what that means. When we pray for illumination to be lit up by God's Word, we, we seek from, from Him, from God, something that we lack in ourselves. We, we come to the Word knowing that we need something from it that apart from it we cannot even begin to have. And so we ask God that our minds, when we come to the Word, might be awake, that they might be open, that our, that our thoughts might be attentive to what He has to say to us today in this moment of our lives. But it is more, of course, than that, isn't it? It's not just an intellectual pursuit. It's not just filling our minds with new ideas. It is that, but it is more than that. When we seek to be illumined, do we not also seek a heart that is warmed to the truths of the Scripture? We want, like those disciples on the road to Emmaus, as Jesus, they encounter the resurrected Jesus and speak to Him and hear Him expound the Scriptures, their hearts, it said, burned within them. And we want our hearts to burn within in us. Minds illumined, hearts aflame, stiff necks no longer stiffened towards the Lord, but turned toward Him and with Him. Our dead members quickened so that they might live and serve Him. We want our whole being, do we not? when we pray for illumination, to be renewed by contact with God Himself as the Word of God is opened. That's what we want. We would read the words and see our God. And in short, we want to be lit like lamps, using the language of our passage, because that is the very thing Jesus likens you and I to here in this passage. He calls you 
body and soul, a lamp. A lamp. He uses this short parable, therefore, to teach you and I, I think, three things about the fact that we are, as he calls us, lamps. First, that in reality, he means it when he says it, that you are something like a lamp. And, that's, and secondly, that there, therefore, it is necessary that you be lit. And thirdly, that there is a reward for such who are illumined or lit as a lamp. And then we'll expound the text under those three heads. The reality, the necessity, and the reward of illumination. So let's begin with the statement, a simple statement of fact, the reality that you, you and I, function in God's good world as His creatures, as what Jesus calls here, lamps. It is an idea that our Lord introduces to us by observing something that in his day, was a universally accepted idea. It is a common practice that everyone knows and experiences in his day. They all know what it is to, at the end of their day, as they're preparing to lay down to sleep, to light lamps in the darkness. They all know what it's like. They have all lit lamps. Probably did the day before and will at the end of this day. And so he says in verse 33, not one of them, after lighting a lamp, does this. Not one of them puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Obviously not so that they may walk in and stare at the light itself, but that they might see the light that shines from the lamp that's lit in the room. It's so obvious, this observation that he brings up, that it almost goes without saying. Of course no one would light a lamp and go and put it in a cellar that is in some place dark where you you keep things that need to be kept away from the light. No, you wouldn't do that. And of course they wouldn't put it under a basket. They would, of course, light a lamp and set it up high so that it shines more broadly throughout the room that they've set it in. We all do that. We understand. Everyone knows that a lamp is lit to give light. Importantly, I think this involves something that you and I, on the other hand, may not notice given our familiarity with the way we have lights in our homes and in our buildings, our familiarity with electricity and light switches. When we light a lamp, when we turn on a light, as we say it, what do we do? We flip a switch or we push a button. And I think probably some of you even are able to speak and say, Alexa, Turn the lights on. We don't understand quite what it means to light a lamp because for most of the history of humanity, particularly in the ancient world, to light a lamp did not mean electricity but fire. It meant fire. It meant touching the lamp with a source of fire, fire that then would be communicated from the source to the lamp and the lamp would then burn to light up the the room. And I think we all know what this is like, of course. We've most of us been to our Christmas Eve services and at the end of the service we go out in the lawn and there are a few of us who carry bigger candles that are lit with a flame and we go to everyone who has a little candle in their hand and we, we pass the flame on by touching the, the flame of the big candle to the little candle and the light spreads over the entire lawn and the whole place that was dark is filled with light. Someone takes the lamp and touches it to another and the lamp's are lit. And that is literally the language here. In the Greek, the way that it describes kindling a lamp 
is the word, the verb, to touch. Because that's what they do. They have a, they have a lamp filled with fuel, fuel and they touch it with fire and it takes the flame. It is a universally accepted idea. An objectively real experience common to everyone. And that's what Jesus points them to. But then he goes on to say something, doesn't he? He communicates something about who you and I are in reality to this commonly observed phenomenon of lighting lamps. Verse 34, he says, Your eye, it's a bit strange, your eye is the lamp of your body. It's almost like saying your eye is like the wick on a candle. Or your eye is, is, is like the, 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 the little flammable part of the match that you strike and, and light it up. Or that little piece of cloth that emerges out of the kerosene lamp that you catch the fire to. It is the place that receives the flame, the fire. Your eye, he says, is that. And it is an important idea, I think, given especially the context of what, where this this section of our text comes in the larger context of Luke. Jesus, remember, I mentioned it a minute ago, has just finished calling the crowd to whom he's speaking to behold, to use their eyes, the, the part of them that is the, the, the lamp, to look. He's called them twice. In verse 31, if you have your Bible, you can look there. Just before our, our text, it begins in verse 33, he says, Behold, Something greater than Solomon is here. And then in verse 32, Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Is here. Look with your eyes, with the lamps of your body. And, and informed by His voice to look, they are called to touch, as it were, with their eyes, that greater one who stands burning before them. Beholding Him, their eye, their wick, will catch fire is the idea. And I think we see this kind of thing in other places in Scripture. Let me give you an example of it in John's Gospel. In John chapter 12, uh, beginning around the 34th verse, we hear the words of the crowd who's been interacting with Jesus for a period of time, and, and they're, they're looking at the man. And as they look at him, they say to him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man. You see this crowd listening to His teaching, looking at Him. They begin to stir and give voice to the idea of Christ, Messiah, and Son of Man, and you. And there's these, they're, they're, these things are milling about in their mind. They've come to a recognition of these things in relationship to this man. And so they begin, as it were, to draw near to the flame. They begin to be kindled. A spark, as it were, is, has sparked in their midst, they show signs of being touched by looking at Him as they listen to His Word. And so Jesus responds in chapter 12, verse 35 of the Gospel of John with this, The light, remember the light in the ancient world is a fire. The light is among you for a little while longer, He says. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. While you have the light, believe in the light. Blow on that little ember, that spark, and so that it will catch and become a flame that continues to burn and give light to the room that you may, he says, become sons of light. You see, there's a call to receive what has already been given or communicated to them by the presence of Christ in their midst. 
They have what they need with him speaking. They need nothing more. No more is necessary than him. Walk in it. It's as if he's saying, believe upon him. Believe it. And I think it is the same for the crowd in our own text today. They, if you remember, want something more. They've come to Jesus and they've come seeking from him a sign. They come to Jesus as lamps to the flame and they want something other than the flame that he provides. But all they will be given is this man who stands before them Jesus, who's teaching and will eventually die and rise. A fire that is meant for the purpose of kindling them. And this is the reality, and it necessarily demands a response, you see. They really are lamps needing fire, and therefore they need to respond to Jesus, which brings us to our second point. If you are a lamp, and a lamp you are, then you must, we must, be lit. And so he goes on in verse 34. When your eye is healthy, your whole body, he says, is full of light. Like a match encountering a spark or a candle touching a flame, the encounter is meant to illumine you wholly. And I think that that has far-reaching implications. The match lit, you see, the candle burning, has realized its purpose for existence, has it not? Why do you have a match or a candle but for it to be kindled and set aflame to be illumined wholly? It is its proper end. The glory of a match is, we might say, in its ignition. The beauty and goodness of a candle is in its burning with the light of fire. What else is it for if it's not those things? So, your health, Jesus is saying, is measured in your seeing him as he is in truth, and seeing him, seeing all things as they are meant to be, the whole world, the whole world, your life, and yes, even your biology, your flesh and blood, it includes everything, your gender, your birth parents, your ordinary things, it is all, the whole, lit up, full of light. When your eye is healthy, your whole body, he says, will be full of light. And I think it's important to know as well that that word healthy can be translated differently. It has a variety of meanings. The King James translates it single, when your eye is single. The NASB and those in that tradition translate it clear, when your eye is clear. And I think that what's being communicated here to us is an idea of something that's unaffected, There are no obstructions. There are no obstacles, no blurring or distorting of the plain reality that is set before you. For any such perversion of sight, any snuffing out or or quenching of a smoking flax is called here, in Jesus' words, bad. Or more literally and strongly, evil. It's evil. But Jesus goes on in verse 34, he says it, When it, the eye is bad or evil, your whole body is full of darkness. What he is saying is that if your eye fails for some reason or another to properly look and see him as he is and declares himself to be, to behold him as one greater than these others, then you are like a match that refuses to light. What do you do with a match that refuses to light? And then you take the next one out. 
or a candle that refuses to burn. Similar reaction. Your purpose, its purpose, will be lost. Where there is offered the full light of understanding and darkness is found, then all is lost. As he says, your whole body is full of darkness. And I think we can't miss the emphasis here on the body in this passage. It's hard to miss in the text. It's hard not to notice given our cultural confusion. Where the body is intended to be lit up with the light that comes from God and doesn't get lit up as it is intended to be lit, then it is darkness. And without His light, the light that lightens every man, John says, the light who is Himself the light of life, all is dark. We can't even see or understand our own bodies. That's what He's saying. And that darkness, Jesus teaches us, is somehow rooted in our eyes. But not our eyes alone, but eyes informed by the ear. He's been speaking to them, and speaking they're meant to see. And it's been that way from the beginning. Just think of the very beginning when God made man and He put him in a garden. You'll remember that He puts him in the Garden of Eden and there it reads that He set him in that garden and planted a number of trees in the garden with them. And the trees are described there as pleasant to the sight, to his eyes. God sets Adam in a garden full of eye-pleasing trees. And so we can assume that Adam is there and he is giving attention with his eyes to the beauty of the scenery around him. And it is in that situation where Adam is beholding the beauty of the trees that God comes and speaks to Adam as he wonders at the trees that are pleasant to his eyes. He says, you may eat of every tree in the garden, except, except you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. All the trees were beautiful to his sight, and by that sight alone, he may have eaten from all of them. But informed by God's Word, what does Adam do? He sees it differently. One tree, though pleasant, is no longer pleasant, and all the other ones remain to be so. Why would it have appeared differently to them? Only because of God's Word. God's Word informs his sight. It informs the way Adam saw that particular tree. And seeing the garden by the word, his eye, using Jesus' language, would have been called healthy, clear, single, as he saw it, as it was meant to be, his body as well, full of light. But then, of course, we know the story. There, another word came to the people in the garden, Adam and his wife Eve. And the woman, his wife, listening to that voice, it says, looked and saw that the tree that you weren't supposed to eat from was good for food and a delight to the eyes. The eyes still functioning, you see. She's not blind. She can still look and see. But looking and seeing, she looks not by God's Word, but by the Word of another. And everything now is dark. Which brings us back to Jesus and the crowd that gazes at Him. And we find, as we read through the Gospels, don't we, many things words said about this man. Ah, he's just Joseph and Mary's son. We know his brothers and his sisters, his family. Just another man. Nothing to see here. Or 
Well, he works miracles, but we know lots of other miracle workers, and we like it when they work miracles for us, so we can come to him for that. He's another prophet among many prophets. Or worse, he casts out demons, but he does it by Beelzebub. He's a false prophet. We should silence his mouth, and we should kill him, stone him with stones as the law commands. And not only do we encounter this kind of thing with Jesus, do we not encounter it, you and I, with the church? It is a human institution, just like all other human institutions. It's just another among many religions, Christianity. Which one is right anyway? Or it's an evil institution. It speaks lies and deceives men and women. It is the opiate of the masses. The Bible, too, is reviled like this, is it not? A work of men. Just another book among books. Nothing special to read here, or worse, a tome of lies and falsehoods and untruth. Or even the world itself, the creation in which we walk that displays God's beauty. It's the product of long ages of physical, geological, and biological processes. And our body, it's just the end of that process too. A highly advanced ape or a blank canvas that we can do with what we want. Or even more, worse, a lie that's not told us the truth about who we are. See, these are all words that we speak and hear, words that we see by. And they claim to illumine, but fail. And instead, they spread darkness. The God of this world, according to the Apostle Paul, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Not one of them, not any of those words can kindle the lamp or illumine the eye. It's only Christ. He is, you see, necessary for us. Necessary for us to behold that we might be kindled. The one whom God has set before us and called by his word, as the writer to the Hebrews has it, the radiance of the glory of God. And again, remember, when they think radiance, they're thinking the light of a fire, primarily. Or as Paul says it, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Apart from him, you see, we will see nothing. It's like trying to perceive your hand in the darkness of a cave when you've turned out the the headlamps. You could have it this close and it doesn't matter what you do. You feel the wind of it, but you can't see your hand. There's nothing you can do apart from light. It is necessary to have Christ to achieve our purpose as lamps and to have light. He is the light that lightens every man. And so, properly, fittingly, he warns us in verse 35, Therefore, for this reason, be careful. Beware. Take every thought captive. Test all things, lest the light that is in you be darkness. Lest it be something other than him who alone can kindle and bring to flame the lamp lest you have other, some other source beside him, some other one beside Christ, not Solomon, not Jonah, not some idea about salvation or Messiah, just and only Christ alone. You are a lamp, and you necessarily need him that you might be lit. Such then, the reality and the necessity. Now the final point, the reward. And we have it there, I think, as a promise With the seriousness of the warning in verse 35, there comes the surety of the promise in verse 36. He says, If then, 
Your whole body is full of light, having no part dark. Now, I don't want you to trip up there. Because I think we hear no part dark and we think, man, I've got to get all of it out of me. And we get busy thinking of it in the wrong way. But it's not, that's, not how, that's not what it means. We've just been told how we get full of light. And it's a very simple thing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Jesus, as He stands in the Scriptures, as those words inform our eyes to look, look at Him. Look full on His wondrous face. You know the song. The things on earth will grow strangely dim. We actually get it wrong there. That's not what the Scripture tells us, at least not here. The things on earth don't go strangely dim in the light of His glorious face, but instead, you look full on Him, and the created things shine. They shine with the glory of God. They are illumined with purpose and an end that you were missing before. Your whole body will be full of light. Your biology, your physiology, your place in the church in connection to the head, even Jesus, all will be clear as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. That's what he says. And he warns us and he encourages us, does he not? If we catch a glimpse of that, just the merest spark. Don't snuff it out. Don't cover it or hide it somewhere. No, set it up for all to see. Yes, walk in the light as He is in the light. And you will have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse you of all of your sins. The darkness of guilt and shame will fly away. And the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus will become your delight for He is light, and whoever follows Him, He promises, will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so will be, like Jesus is Himself, the light of the world. Because that's what He says of us, does He not, when we believe? You are the light of the world. So be lamps and burn with the flame of beholding Him according to His Word. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful to you for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ as a bright and shining lamp that we can come and ourselves be kindled and so shine with his light in a world. Lord, we pray that you would in your mercy send us out as lights that are not hidden but set up on high so that all may see and come to know in truth, the truth, even our Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that belongs to all those who believe in him and are united to you by the Spirit through him who loved us and gave himself for us. In his name we pray. Amen.